0: Well, I will add my good morning to the few that you have heard already. Um, it really is a joy to get to open God's word together, um, and like Rusty said, in community, to do this not just as individuals, but as the gathered body of Christ together to, to hear his words proclaimed from his scripture, this um, living word that we've had for a couple thousand years, and um, is still just as true today as it was when Jesus first spoke it. This morning, as Pastor Rusty mentioned, we'll be continuing our series through the book of Mark. We'll be covering three stories today between Mark chapter 2 verse 18 and 3 verse 6. I'd recommend if you have a Bible with you to turn there um, because we're covering three stories. We're going to be moving a little on the quick side. Um, So yeah, having the text open in front of you will definitely be helpful. Just for some context as we begin this morning, we're still pretty close to the beginning of the book of Mark. And these three stories we're looking at today actually fall into a set of five stories that Mark kind of uses to, to help us understand a little bit about Jesus' ministry before he really gets off and running, uh, starting in chapter 3, verse 7. So two weeks ago, we addressed the first of these five stories, with Jesus healing a paralytic man, proclaiming his authority to forgive sins, and the Pharisees kind of freaking out. Last week, we talked about the call of Levi, or Matthew and Jesus eating with sinners, and then the Pharisees, of course, kind of freaking out. And the final three stories that we'll be looking at today are also conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees. We'll take one at a time this morning, um, and then we'll kind of tie it all together when we get to the end. So we'll start this morning, once again, in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, where we read this first conflict, or, well, the first today, the third of these five conflicts with the Pharisees. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So a trend you'll realize with each of these stories is that they're pretty simple, right? So this one, some people come up and ask Jesus a question about fasting, and he answers them. There's a couple of important details we need to deal with to really understand the question and the answer. So first of all, we have to realize what these people would have understood by the word fasting. What were they talking about? So the Old Testament, the law that these Jewish people would have followed, actually only required one fast of believers. And it was once a year on the Jewish Day of Atonement. The Pharisees, however, as they were apt to do, added onto the biblical command their own human elements. The Pharisees actually fasted twice a week. And from history, we happen to know that those days were Monday and Thursday. Every week, two days a week, the Pharisees would fast. And it's important to understand that when these people would have thought of fasting, there were kind of three associations with fasting. Mourning, like mourning over a death or over something. Um, repentance over sin. And preparing yourself for some sort of big event. So that's what they have in mind when they're thinking of fasting, but we also have to deal with who asked Jesus this question. Because Mark is nice and vague. He just tells us that people came up and asked Jesus. But I already mentioned to you that we're talking about five conflicts that Jesus had with the Pharisees. So why do I say that? This is where we have to do a fun little thing called harmonization. Because three gospel accounts talk about the story, and all three record it a little bit differently. Uh, Matthew, in his account, tells us that the, the disciples of John asked Jesus this question. Luke's account tells us that the Pharisees asked Jesus this question. And Mark gives us the nice, vague people. Which, actually, when you start to think about it and look in the context of these stories, it's not super hard to possibly piece together what happened here. See, the Pharisees and the disciples of John did not get along. The, the Pharisees already were hating this, this new Jewish sect as they would have viewed it following John the Baptist. But the Pharisees prove again in a later story and prove here that they were always willing to make pretty much any alliance they had to if it meant tearing down Jesus. So that's led commentators to speculate, and I think rightly, that what happened here is that the Pharisees saw something them and the disciples of John could agree on. And so they essentially were trying to form an alliance. So they stirred them up, And the Pharisees and the disciples of John together approach Jesus to ask this question about fasting. So that's what we're dealing with, this unholy alliance between two groups that really don't get along and a question about fasting, which is generally associated with mourning, preparing for an event, repentance, that sort of thing. And Jesus, as he often does, doesn't really offer them a straight answer. He instead answers with what are essentially three parables. So the first one that he offers them can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So it's a simple parable with a simple point. It's not fitting to fast during a time of celebration. Jewish weddings were huge events, weeks long or a week long feasting, partying. It would not be right to fast during a time of celebration. But hidden just below the surface of this very simple parable, I think there's some pretty big claims that Jesus is making. Because first of all, we have to ask why he chose a wedding. He could have picked a lot of different celebrations, a lot of different events. There are big festivals in the Jewish calendar. He could have picked any of those to say that you shouldn't mourn while there's celebration. But instead, he picked a wedding, and to identify himself as the groom, the bridegroom. I think what he's doing, and I think what the Pharisees likely would have caught on to, is that Jesus, this early in his ministry, is already starting to make some claims about who he is. Because that language of bridegroom, they would recognize it. The Old Testament is full of this idea of God being the husband of his people. For example, Hosea chapter 2, we read, God speaking of the nation of Israel, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will make her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by her by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And then here's key. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And that language isn't just unique to Hosea. We see it in other places, but also Isaiah chapter 62, um, where God, again, speaking of the nation of Israel, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I think Jesus is already starting to hint at his divinity here. It's clear throughout the Old Testament that the, the bridegroom of Israel is God himself. And another I think, thing that he's starting to hint at here is in the language he uses when he says, the bridegroom will be taken away. That's key. Not go away. The bridegroom's not going to leave. He's going to be taken by force. I think he's already hinting about the cross. And he's making the point to his disciples already that there will be a time when it's time to mourn. When he has died on the cross, will be time for mourning. And then, I think we can even go a little further and say that when he has risen from the dead, and ascended to heaven, they can continue to fast in preparation for his second coming. So in just that one simple parable, I think he's already kind of hinting at some two really big ideas. But we're actually going to skip the other two parables just for now. Um, I'll explain why when we come back to them. But for now, we'll move on into our second story for today. It's in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So again, pretty simple story. Jesus and his disciples on the Sabbath walking through a grain field. His disciples, a bunch of young men, not surprisingly, get hungry, begin to pick some grain. The Pharisees freak out. They see them as breaking the Sabbath. And then Jesus rebukes them. Simple story but there's a slight problem, and that's that the Pharisees were sort of, and let me really stress sort of, correct. We go to Exodus chapter 34. There's, you don't have to turn with me, it's just going to be there briefly, but there's mention of some of the Old Testament laws, specifically pertaining to the Sabbath. It says, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest." So that's a connection that makes sense. The Pharisees see grain. They see the grain being taken off of its stock. They see that as harvest on the Sabbath. That's bad. I think any farmers here, including my dad who's here today, can agree that taking a single piece of grain off of whatever, a wheat head, is not harvest. You know, this is not full-on taking the whole crop down. They were just grabbing some to eat. But nonetheless, the Pharisees kind of actually had a point. So then, to understand why Jesus rebuked them, we need to understand the Pharisees rightly. Because I think there's a tendency to view the Pharisees as just these religious leaders who knew their Old Testament very, very well. But then, for some reason, we make that a negative thing in our minds. It's almost like it's bad that they knew their Bibles. Almost like our implication is that even though they knew the law, they shouldn't have told people to obey it. They should have turned a blind eye. So, let's be clear. The Pharisees knew the words of the Old Testament incredibly well. They would have had large amounts memorized. They were probably able to write out a bulk of the first five books of the Bible from memory if they wanted to. And while they knew the words pretty well perfectly, they were kind of bad at putting them together and actually getting to the meaning of these things throughout the Old Testament. See, the Pharisees' problem wasn't a wealth of biblical understanding. It was actually a lack of biblical understanding. Their issue was that they thought they knew the Bible really well because they knew the words, but they had missed it. They had missed the big picture. They had, in a lot of cases, even missed the small pictures. They just didn't get it. And if you're skeptical of that interpretation of the Pharisees, I think Jesus' response to them helps make this even more clear as he answers them by starting with, Have you never read? Ouch. These leaders, these religious leaders, and his his question, Have you never read this? Bible story about King David, one of the most important figures in Jewish history? Well, of course they had. But his point in asking the question the way he did was to say, you've read it, but you don't get it. You have no idea what is happening in this story, even though you could probably write it out from memory. So the story that Jesus takes them back to is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. let Let's just flip there quickly and read the story for you. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet, him, meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women? And David answered the priest, "'Truly, women have been kept from us, "'as always when I go on an expedition. "'The vessels of the young men are holy, "'even when it is an ordinary journey. "'How much more today will their vessels be holy?' So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away." So, as Jesus points out in the story, and as is made clear in Leviticus chapter 24, this actually is a problem. The holy bread was only ever to be eaten by priests. And so if you were reading the Bible straight through, front cover to back cover, and you had an incredible memory, you'd hit Leviticus 24, and you'd see that no one but the priests were supposed to eat the holy bread. And then you'd get to 1 Samuel 21, and you would see David eat the holy bread, And the author of 1 Samuel 21 makes no comment on whether what he did was right or wrong. So you'd just be kind of left with really not a clear sense of what had happened there until we see the words of Jesus here. It's hard. It's, It's kind of strange. But the point that Jesus is making is ultimately that he gets to decide what is okay and what isn't okay on the Sabbath. And that's why his answer to the Pharisees is to say the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That first sentence, Sabbath made for man and not man for the Sabbath. There were actually Jewish rabbis at the time who taught the opposite. They legitimately taught the people that God established the Sabbath first and then needed someone to keep it. So he made humans in order to keep the Sabbath essentially implying that a core part of human existence uh, is doing nothing on Saturdays. Good, that's helpful. So Jesus' point to them is, no, 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 you have it all wrong. It's not at all that the Sabbath was made first. It's that man was made first and God made Sabbath for their good. The Sabbath and the whole of the law existed for the sake of mankind. Right, Sabbath was a time for the people of Israel to rest and worship. It was essentially a time for them to to testify to the faithfulness and provision of God. Because, you know, 4,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, you got hungry on a Saturday night. You couldn't just run to Walmart and pick up your food. You had to be reaping. You had to be planting more crops. You had to be growing them, tending to them. To stop and not work one seventh out of every week was to potentially risk starvation. But the point was that when they rested, they proved that God was going to be faithful. They testified to it, and he was. He supplied for his people. In a culture where everyone worked seven days all the time to survive, the people of God could rest. At this point, you can almost imagine the Pharisees' shock. Who does this man think he is? He can't tell us what the Sabbath is for or what's okay to do on the Sabbath and what isn't. And I think, well, obviously Jesus would have known their hearts And his response, and specifically the way he frames his response, is so important. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So we have kind of these two Son of terms used to describe Jesus. We have Son of Man and Son of God. We know, because we are an Orthodox Christian church, and as the church has believed for 2,000 years, Jesus is fully man and fully God. He has this dual nature. And while both of these titles have some of of both in them, the emphases of the titles are actually flipped from what we would think. To to make my point, uh, Adam is called a son of God. Angels are called sons of God. Even believers, all of us, are called in Scripture sons of God. It's not necessarily a claim to divinity. Son of man, however, comes directly out of Daniel chapter 7 in one of Daniel's visions. When Jesus claims for himself the title of son of man, he is claiming to be God. The one who the ancient of days, who God himself gives an eternal kingdom to, gives authority over everything. God can only give that to God. And so to the Pharisee's question of who do you think you are, Jesus' response is, well, I'm the one who made the Sabbath. And I'm the one who made people. So I can decide what the Sabbath is for. I can decide how my commandments are applied. And that leads us into our final story, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Another very simple story. This possibly happened on the exact same day. (laughs) From the wheat field, Jesus heads into the synagogue, and the Pharisees follow him in. They're essentially trying to set a trap. They're just watching him, waiting for him to do something that they can condemn him for. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, steps right into their trap. And in turn, traps them right back, as you can see with the question that he asks them. Right? They're watching. They're waiting to see what he's going to do. He gets the man to come to him, fully implying to the Pharisees what he plans on doing right now, and then asks them the question, Is the Sabbath for doing good or for doing harm? And then he just escalates that question another level. Is it to save life or to kill? And now they're trapped. What can they say? If they say that the Sabbath is to do good, then they can't be upset about Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath because that is objectively a good thing. But if they say that it's to do harm, they're in serious trouble with all of Scripture because it's very clear that the Sabbath is not to do harm. So they stay completely silent. They're trapped and they know it. Jesus' response here, though, this, this insight into his emotion given by Mark shows us the heart of Christ, right? Because it's this twofold feeling. First, anger, just, righteous anger. These teachers, they don't get it at all. They are not willing to give up their man made notions of what the Old Testament law is supposed to mean even when something clearly better is being offered to them, even when a clear answer to a question is, the Sabbath is for doing good, they can't do it. They're stuck, and he's angry. But also in his anger, we read that he was grieved at their hardness of heart. The leaders of God's chosen people don't understand his word. They're unfaithful. This is, if we want to look at the bridegroom language from earlier, the grief of a spouse who has been betrayed, one who has been faithful, and the spouse in return has been unfaithful. And, you know, we we see this mix of emotion from Jesus all throughout the Gospels. Because, you know, the God who took time, sat down, braided a whip, walked into the temple, and kicked everybody out who was trying to sell stuff in it, was also the God who wept over the city of Jerusalem who lamented all the prophets who had been sent to try to warn them, to try to bring them back. That was the heart of Christ. Both anger over sin, but an incredible love for his people. And in this emotional state, feeling both anger and grief, he heals the man in the most simple way possible. Nothing crazy. You know, he he doesn't make him do anything weird, doesn't send him to to dip in the Jordan like some of the prophets do throughout the Old Testament. He just, just reach out your hand, reach it out. And whatever a withered hand means, not really sure, there's some different theories, he stretches out his arm, and it's done. He's healed, miraculously. The Pharisees don't care. They ignore it, they go, and they essentially aim to make another unholy alliance. The Herodians were essentially a cult that worshipped Herod. They didn't want his reign to end. So the Pharisees teamed up with maybe the most anti-Jewish people in the entire kingdom just because they wanted to try to take Jesus down. So those are the three stories. And like I said, they're kind of part of this set of five that we've covered over the past few weeks. And, and the, the points made throughout them are, are pretty incredible, right? We see that Jesus can forgive sin. That's a big deal. I know we're used to that, but that's a huge deal that this man who took on flesh, this God who took on flesh, has the authority to forgive sins. That's our only hope. We also see that he calls unqualified people. That is also our only hope, because that's every single one of us. You know, we see that he is the God of the universe, who establishes commands and who decides how it is that they are to be followed. But all five of these stories, all five of them actually point towards one thing, They work together to make one central point. And that point is found in those parables that we skipped. But to understand why I feel like I can say that, I need to teach you a little bit about a Hebrew literary device called a chiasm. This is going to get a little technical. I'm going to do my best. Um, Essentially, this is a literary device used all throughout Scripture. Uh, It's helpful for two things. It lets authors kind of tell you what their central point is without actually saying, this is the central point. Um, Also, it was a really good memory tool because in a time when there weren't hundreds of billions of Bibles lying around, you had to actually kind of memorize large chunks of Scripture if you wanted to be able to meditate on them like the word commands. So the way a chiasm works is that you structure stories. You put your main point in the center, And then you put other stories with clear parallels kind of going off of it, almost like ripples from the middle of a pond. That's not a good explanation. So here's a picture. This should help. So with these five stories we've covered over the past three weeks, you'll see that there's two A sections, top and bottom, two B sections in the middle there, and then C right in the middle. So the A's. The first and the fifth story of these set of five relate to Jesus healing someone. Clear parallel. They're both talking about healing. Bees, story two, story four, clearly deal with stuff about eating. Jesus eating with sinners, or his disciples, right, to, to gather to eat on the Sabbath. And then, right in the middle, we hit these parables that we skipped earlier. So the point is that Mark actually structured all five of these stories in order to point us right at these words in Mark chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. So these two parables. Jesus says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So two parables, one point, one central point for all five of these stories of Jesus' controversies with the Pharisees. First one, one that actually I think we can understand pretty easily, even in modern times. If you're patching up a piece of clothing that has already shrunk, and you put brand new cloth on it and sew it on, well, eventually the patch, like the other cloth from the garment, is going to shrink. And it's going to tear away and make a worse hole than before because it wasn't shrunk in advance. The other one, the wineskins, not something we're so used to. Wineskins were uh, made out of animal parts, essentially, um, and they had to be flexible. So you would take new wine, you would pour it into a wineskin, and as the wine would continue to ferment, it would release gases, and the wineskin, because it was flexible, could grow and expand with it. The Problem was, once this had happened already in the life of a wineskin, it became brittle. It lost its flexibility. And so if you had an empty wineskin and you poured in more new wine as it began to ferment and the gases were released, the the wineskin couldn't flex anymore. It couldn't grow anymore and it would rupture. The whole thing would explode. The wine would spill out and the skin would be destroyed. So all five stories are essentially for Jesus to make the point to the Pharisees that they cannot mix the old with the new. That this old way that they're so caught in, it can't mesh with what he is bringing about. Now, to be clear, when we're talking about the Old Testament law, it was good. It was a good gift from God. But the book of Hebrews tells us that God found fault with the law. It wasn't perfect. It was meant to point us towards something else, to something better, to this new wine that Jesus was bringing. Jesus brought something better than than the old religious institutions. And it was something that they they couldn't contain. They couldn't be mixed. It would just result in a rupture. It wasn't going to work. To put it more simply, something greater has come. Jesus has come. And I mean, even as we walk through these five stories, we see such clear elements of this, right? So the first story, Jesus heals a paralytic man and forgives his sins. Okay, Old Testament prophets... We, we see them heal people. They do it. There's a guy who gets thrown on the bones of a dead prophet and comes back to life. Crazy miracles that happen at the hands of these prophets. But none of them could forgive sins. The prophets who could only do one of these things, they're done. Jesus is here. He's better. What about the Pharisees' view of righteousness, right? Their response to Jesus. You can't eat with sinners. And Jesus' response to them, we see here, and we see as it is expanded on throughout the New Testament, The Pharisees thought people needed to be perfect to be acceptable to God, and they were right. The difference is, now Jesus offers his perfection in place of our own. It's no longer obedience to the law, it's faith in Christ that justifies us, that saves us. The Pharisees wanted to add their own rules to Sabbath. They wanted to make it something it was never intended to be, and Jesus' response You had one day. The Sabbath was one day of rest. I'm offering you something better. I'm offering you eternal rest in the presence of God. Not just one day a week, forever. The point of all of this is to say that that something better is here. That everything that the Old Testament pointed towards had finally come. Right? All these Old Testament heroes, or in some cases not so much heroes, Adam, tempted in the Garden of Eden to sin, went his own way, ate of the fruit, messed up humanity. The Lord Jesus, tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane to go his own way, to do what he thought was best, right? My God, if this cup can be taken from me, let it be. But he didn't go his own way. He was obedient to death and restored humanity's relationship with his father. Moses, the great hero of Israel, led them out of slavery in Egypt into the Promised Land. Except that he didn't right before they got there, he disobeyed. He sinned and he was prevented from entering with the people. But Jesus, the great hero of his people, who led them out of slavery to sin, into the promised land of eternal joy in his presence. No sin. No mistakes. His presence in our promised land forever. King David, the ultimate Jew, the guy, this messianic figure in their history, raped Bathsheba had her husband murdered to cover up his own sin. Not the perfect king, but Jesus, the ultimate king of Israel, who reigns in righteousness, no sin, no fault, no enemies who can stand against him, an unending kingdom. Jesus was the fulfillment of every way that these Old Testament figures failed. He made it right. He was what all of it was pointing towards. His coming meant that all the shadows, all the whispers, from the beginning of the book of Genesis, they were done. They were fulfilled. The best had come. Jesus himself says as much. Matthew chapter 12. We see Matthew's account of the story of the the grain field. So Jesus and disciples go through the field. The disciples pick some grain. The Pharisees freak out. Um, In this account, Jesus brings up the story of David, but then also adds this. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than this place where they would have understood as God dwelling in the Ark of the Covenant. Something greater than even that had arrived. And that something greater, that someone greater, remains in that place of greatness, of ultimate greatness to this day. Right? Because here's the key. The Old Testament law was good. It was good for a time. It had an expiry date. And when Jesus came, died, and rose again, it was passing away. The book of Hebrews said it was growing obsolete. But now, the the new wine that was given then in these new wineskins, this is the stuff that we don't want to trade. The old The old could go, but this is it now. And there's There's no new wineskins. There's no new wine until Christ comes again. And that's the mistake some of these other religious movements have made. The Muslims thought Muhammad had new revelation, a new word from God. Mormons think the same thing, a new word from God, a new revelation. But Jesus is clear that the wine that he brought here was the best wine there was ever going to be. The wine, the wineskins have to be preserved. But I fear, church, that the Western church, the North American church, the Canadian church, we are constantly at risk of making a similar mistake to the Pharisees. Because you see, the Pharisees' mistake was that they were trying to pour, or they wanted Jesus to pour the new wine of the gospel into their old wineskins of Old Testament law following, and in a lot of cases, their own additions to it. I think that the way that we can potentially become like Pharisees, is that we try to take these perfect old wineskins of the gospel, these ones that have been going strong for 2,000 years, and we want to take culture's new wine and add it in, thinking that that's going to work. But I'll tell you that if we do that, we're going to break it all. You add any new wine to the wineskin of the gospel, it's not the gospel anymore. So I should define that, right? I should define what the gospel is if I'm going to talk about our need to protect it. So, as briefly as I can present it, the message of the gospel as presented in Scripture is this. That we, broken sinners, we have offended a holy and perfect God. And there is nothing in us that can fix that relationship. God is holy. He is perfect, and we are not, and there's no way we can bridge that gap. God feels wrath over sin. Imperfection cannot exist in the presence of perfection. It doesn't work. But God, in his great love, sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin, to absorb God's wrath for sin on the cross, so that by faith in him and not obedience to any law, we can be made right with God and spend eternity in his presence, not by any works of our own, but that in our imperfection, we are given Christ's perfection. That's the message of the gospel. And there are four things that I see in North American church culture today that terrify me, that I see being added to the message of the gospel. The first one, one that is unfortunately being preached from many pulpits across North America, is by adding the message of self-help or self-advancement to the message of the gospel. Let's be super clear. Jesus did not come and die so that you could be a better person and live a better life. He did not come and die so it'd be easier for you to get that promotion at work or so that you could be financially successful. Jesus came and died to reconcile hopeless and broken sinners to his father so that he could be the firstborn among many brothers. And any blessings we might get on earth as a result of that, great, but that's not the message. Second thing, church, I fear that the church in North America is trying to add to the gospel the message of political salvation. Christianity does not belong to any political party, to any political leader. Ultimately, political leaders are fallen, sinful human beings. There's there's no hope in politics. We're all broken. We are all apt to be corrupted by our sin. We cannot make the world a better place. We can do our best, we can do little things, but no human being will ever ultimately improve the condition of this world. That is something that only God can do. And when we start to tie the gospel to political leaders, we are asking for trouble. We are asking to destroy the message of the gospel. Third one, one that we talked about not too many weeks ago here. The message of cultural acceptability. We've seen it. Churches that start to talk differently about sin, They lessen the weight of sin. They lessen what the Bible teaches about gender and sexuality. It can be so easy. It's so tempting. You know, you get this idea. More people will become Christians if we just make sin a little smaller, or we don't say exactly what God said about these things. But the truth is that as soon as we start to lessen what the Bible says about those topics, we do harm to the gospel. You lessen what the Bible says about gender and sexuality, you destroy the pictures that God has given us in human relationships as he has constructed them. They're meant to teach us something. We don't get to define what is taught in those relationships. You lessen the teaching on sin, you make God a divine child abuser who killed his son for no reason because there wasn't really a penalty to be paid if sin isn't that important. And finally, if any of these are going to get me in trouble, it's this one. Church, I fear that we are always right now at the risk of trying to wed the message of pro-vax or anti-vax or anywhere else on the spectrum with the message of the gospel. They don't belong together. One is substantially greater than the other. Our lives should be ones that scream about our savior, not about our position on a pandemic. Church, We have been given the greatest news in human history. Period. End of discussion. The greatest has already come, and I promise you it doesn't need help. It doesn't need to be wedded to human ideas, to human institutions. It stands on its own feet. It stood strongly for 2,000 years. It stood strongly as something hinted towards for thousands of years before that in the Old Testament. It's perfect. Wine gets better with age. And we would make a huge mistake to start to try to add to it now. So that's our job. As Paul instructs Timothy, we are to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to us. And that is the simple message of the gospel that God redeems broken sinners. That's our focus, church. That needs to be our focus. To proclaim our Lord Jesus As loud as we possibly can, even if it means that we don't talk about some of the other things that we might want to. Let's pray. Father, this message is it. The gospel is all that we need. The message of the gospel is perfect. It is the greatest wine that you have offered to us. It is your heart for your people. Father, guard us from making the mistakes that have been made. Father, forgive us for the places where we have put other things on the pedestal that only the message of your Son belongs on. Father, I just pray that we as a church, that this church would be a good embassy and each of us good ambassadors going out to represent the will of our King in this world. That we would resist the urge to wed this message to anything else but would be confident that it can stand on its own two feet. And Father, we pray that through the proclamation of that message that you would save many more, that we would see people responding to the gospel as it is in your word, with no additions. We would see your spirit working through your word as it was always intended. Amen.